following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Well, it's summertime and you boys and girls go out in the yard to play and you're Mom might tell you now, when you go out in the yard, you watch out for spiders and rat ants and maybe wasps and yellow jackets because they can really hurt you. And so you need to be careful. But that's really mostly what they do unless you have some kind of allergy. They're going to hurt. They're going to hurt a lot. But they're not going to kill you. But if you boys and girls lived in Africa and you're getting ready to go out in the yard and play, you know what your mom's going to say to you? Watch out for the snakes. Because there's poisonous snakes all over their yards, all around their houses. And they're deadly. It's reported that there are 50,000 poisonous snake bites in Uganda every week. And many out in the bush are never reported. And obviously many die from those snake bites. That's why the missionaries all carry with them their anti-venom kits. And so if you lived there, you had to be aware of the snakes in the grass. But there is another snake in the grass, much worse than those poisonous snakes in Brazil or in Africa. And that is Satan, the devil. He is a serpent, a snake, who's seeking not just to inflict pain, but who's seeking to not just kill the body, but to destroy the soul, to bring you into hell with himself. And now in Job chapter 1, as the scene turns from the land of Uz, in the prosperous days of Job, up into heaven. And when you come into heaven, a very strange transaction is taking place that God allows you to observe. So here in verses 6 through 12, the Holy Spirit is actually introducing us, as I will show you, to the devil. And we see here his strategies. We see God's sovereignty, though, over him. Now, up to this point, we've looked at Job and Uz. We've seen that he was a godly, righteous man. That is repeated by God himself. And we've also seen that his, his piety was, was outward, that he used his wealth to serve others and to rule well in the city gates and above all to nurture his family in uh, the fear of the true God. And that lays the background now for this, this challenge, this test that the Holy Spirit shows us here in Job 1, 6 through 12. So we see here, at the end of the day, God's sovereignty over the purpose and strategies of Satan. God's sovereignty over the purposes and strategies of Satan. We'll look at three things. Uh, a sovereign audience, a sovereign challenge, and sovereign permission. So in verse 6, we read about this uh, sovereign audience. If you look at verse 6, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, Jehovah, and the Satan also came among them. 
So as I said, the veil now is lifted and we are looking at the, uh, the throne room of God. He's having a holy assize. He's, he's a king who has gathered his courtiers into his presence, his servants, to give an answer. Now many commentators think that this is a, a metaphorical language to help us understand God's sovereignty over all of his angels. But there's no reason why something like this would not take place. We first have the sons of God who are gathered here in the presence of the Lord. And, and who are the sons of God? Well, the sons of God are the holy angels created by God when he created the heavens, probably on the first day of creation. They are the servants of God. They were the first choir of God. They are the messengers of God. They are the protector of God's people and the declarer of God's glory, the bringers of revelation. And so it's fitting that uh, they've been on missions and uh, they come now to report to the king. It's not that he doesn't know. You know, he doesn't even need them. Just that he doesn't need you and me, but he uses them for his providential purposes. And he calls them to give an accounting of what, what they've done, the stewardship that's been entrusted to them. So we have this picture of God's glorious angels coming, giving an accounting of their service. And then we're told, hanging around in the back of the room, the Satan also came among them. Now he's called here the Satan, not just Satan. And his name means the adversary. But what is unique about this is this is our first formal introduction to Satan. I was meditating on this. We, of course, have the serpent. We know that some malicious supernatural being uh, indwelt the serpent and tempted our parents through the serpent. But the Old Testament tells us relatively little about this being. Uh, we know that uh, in God's holy providence, a number of angels rebelled against him. In our larger catechism, uh, 19, what is God's providence toward the angels? God, by his providence, permitted some of the angels willfully and irrevocably to fall into sin and damnation. Limiting and ordering that and all their sins to his own glory. And establish the rest in holiness and happiness. Employing them all at his pleasure. Employing them all at his pleasure. In the administration of his power, mercy, and justice. So in the midst of the holy angels. This one Satan. This great angelic prince. Probably one equal to Michael. Um, sins against God. It's, it's put very simply. That's. That's what Peter says. He sinned against God. And Jude says in Jude 6 that uh, uh, they left their former purpose. And in pride and rebellion, uh, this archangel that is called here Satan, led a whole host, thousands of other angels in rebellion against God. And these God cursed to be the devils and the demons. But I want you to notice that that was all according to God's purpose. You see, from eternity, God has planned this whole glorious drama. And how do we use the evil angels in unfolding his holy purposes, as we see here in Job chapter 1. So, he's called the Satan, and that becomes his proper name, Satan. But it's only used three times in all the Old Testament. It's used here in Job 1 and 2. It's used in Zechariah, which we read for our Old Testament reading. And it's used one more time in, in 1 Chronicles 
when it says that Satan stood against Israel and tempted David to number them. Now that's it. That is the clearest revelation in all the Old Testament about him. Now we got that mysterious scene in Daniel 10 where the angel comes and uh, the good angels have been fighting the bad angels over Persia. And that is a great mystery. But we know there's an angelic war going on. By the way, as I prayed this morning, recognizing if we're going to, if we're going to expose Satan today, Satan and the, and the devils are going to attack us. And I've asked God to put a hedge around us here. And let the angels keep away the tempters from us, from those that would distract us in our worship or, or cause difficulties in our midst. Because that is part of what is going on. There is this war. But that's really all the Old Testament tells us about Satan. In fact... Job 1 and 2, along with Revelation 12, are the two clearest, most comprehensive revelations of Satan that we have in the Bible. Now, God expects you and me to be aware of him and of his strategies. Isn't that what Paul assumes with the Corinthians when he's talking about his role in the discipline of the man? He said, I've done this so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we're not ignorant of his schemes. Can that be said of you today, that you're not ignorant of his schemes? Many of us are. When's the last time you gave any real thought, maybe before you meditated on this stuff for today, about the devil and the demons? So this is here that God might teach us about the Satan. His name means adversary. He stands over against God and his people. Now the word is used many times in the Old Testament simply to mean adversary human adversaries. But he is the chief adversary of God and his people. But as we saw in Revelation, he's given many other names. He's called the serpent of old. Now where does that take you? The old serpent back to Genesis 3.15. He's called the great dragon. And the devil, which means slanderer, and Satan, which means the accuser. And so, as we're introduced to him, we see him kind of lurking in the back of the room. You know, maybe you remember when you were in school and you weren't prepared and you're sitting in the back of the room and you're hiding behind somebody's head. You're really hoping the teacher's not going to call on you. <laughs> I think that's what we have here, you know. <laughs> and Satan comes in their midst, but he, he's, he's, he's being called by God to an accounting, but he is lurking in the back. He wants nothing to do with this. Um, but God summons him and... Uh, calls him to an accounting. So we, we see then in verse 7, the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Now God's not ignorant. The very question shows God's sovereignty over Satan, that he's come with the other angels, and he has to now give an accounting of what he's been doing. You see that? What have you been doing, Satan? Where do you come? And notice this very evasive answer from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. It's like he was trekking in Australia or something, you know. Uh, I've just, just been walking around. Of course, in that answer, we learn a great deal about him. In the first place, we see a, a restlessness. He is, he is a restless person. He's, he's a wanderer, and that's part of the consequence of sin. We go right back to Cain for the restlessness of, of the wanderer. But, of course, even in his restless wandering, we know he's not walking about innocently, is he? 
Peter compares him then uh, to a lion. You adversary, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The, the, the chief devil, Satan, and all of his other demons and devils, they're walking about on the earth. And the earth's been given to them, you understand. Paul will, will say uh, of him that he uh, is the god of this world. Uh, he, he's the prince of the power of the air. He has a certain authority and rule over the unregenerate while they remain in a state of, of unbelief. But he's not innocent. No, he's seeking whom he may devour. They're seeking whom they may devour. And, and we see here the awful malice and, and evil of the devil and the demons. They're absolute evil. They're a black hole of all that is moral and good. No human being is as sinful as he can be. But the demons, the devils, could be no more sinful, no more evil than they are. He is a horrendous uh, enemy. And God wants us to understand that. He wants us to be well aware of his enmity and his supernatural power. He is stronger than we are. He's more intelligent than we are. He's more powerful than we are. And he has but one design, and that is to destroy everyone he can. To bring them to hell. To destroy the church because it's the, the light of the gospel that is shining. And he's roaming about seeking to destroy. But we also see here, don't we, that God's sovereign. God said, come here, Satan. Come, give an accounting to me. You're answerable to me. But what's even more glorious from where we sit today is the unfolding of the great scheme of redemption. Because although Satan is still powerful, he doesn't have the, the naked power that he had in the old covenant. What does Christ say when the 70 return from their preaching and healing mission? <laughs> I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. What does Jesus say in John 14 as he goes to the cross? A Satan shall be cast down. And John 16, Satan is coming to judgment. What do we read in Revelation chapter 12? That he has been thrown down by God through his mighty angels. And so in Revelation 20, we, we learn that he's on a leash. Now, it's a very long leash. But what that means is he no longer has the unhindered advance on the nations of the earth and on its peoples as he had in the old covenant. His power is restrained. But listen to this. His power is dying increasingly every single day because he was defeated at the cross and in the resurrection. Do you believe that? You remember that uh, in June of 1944, the Allies invaded Normandy, and that was the beginning of the defeat of Germany. In fact, it was called D-Day, the defeat day. But it was 11 more months, uh, May 8, 1945, before Germany surrendered. That was V-Day. Calvary and the empty tomb, that's D-Day. He's under our feet. He's being crushed. Even as it was prophesied in Genesis chapter 3. 
But V-Day, <laughs> that will come when that great shout from heaven and the clarion trumpet and our Lord descends. We live in that in-between time. We live in a time of the vanquishing of Satan's kingdom. This then should be a great encouragement to us as God gives us this peak. Yes, we see the malice of this one. We'll see it more in chapter, the end of this chapter in chapter 2. We'll see his great power. But our sovereign God is in control. That's why we wanted you to meditate on he who is in you. The Holy Spirit of God is more powerful than he who is in the world. Do you believe that? You can resist the evil one. That's why Paul will promise us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, no temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way to escape also that you will be able to endure it. And what does James tell us to do? Resist the devil, and he will flee from you, because he who is in you is more powerful than he who's in the world. So the audience, the accountability, Come in the second place, though, to uh, the sovereign challenge. <laughs> this, is a, this is a glorious little section here where Satan comes in. Um, God is the one who throws out the challenge. You see, I want you to see this. This is not of Satan. Jehovah said to the Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? <laughs> There's no one like him on all the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. You see how God is initiating the challenge? God is the one who puts out the bait on the water. God is the one who, by this, knowing that Satan is going to be provoked, because there's nothing that Satan hates worse than godly men and women, boys and girls. And here to, to be flaunted. Now, you've been all over the place. You and your devils have been all over the earth, all amongst all peoples. Have you, have you ever found a man like Job? He is the most righteous man on the earth. And God repeats what the writer tells us in verse 1. See, this is God's judgment of Job. That he's blameless and upright and he fears God and he's turning away from evil. Now, God does this. Knowing in his own sovereign knowledge exactly what Satan's response is going to be. Which is the response that God has foreordained. Now here we come deeper into the mystery. You need to understand that all of this that takes place in chapters 1 and 2 is of God's purpose. It is the sovereign purpose of God. But here we see that, that beautiful mystery of how God's sovereign holy purpose will use the sinful purposes even of the devils and of men to tempt and to destroy and do harm. But God is not the one who tempts to sin. God never said, well, Satan, why don't you go out there and, and uh, test Job? Uh, no, God didn't put it into his mind to act evil. God knew what he would do. He would fulfill God's purposes. He would do so freely. And this comes together, this, this glorious truth of the sovereignty of God who has foreordained all that comes to pass. What did we read about the angels? It was his purpose that they fall in order to serve his purposes. 
This helps us understand a passage like the end of 1 Kings 22, where God wants to kill Ahab. And so we get another throne room scene of God, and God is having this discussion. Obviously, this is very much metaphorical. Uh, what are we going to do about Ahab? And there's this suggestion, that suggestion. And then an evil spirit, a demon, who's been allowed into God's presence, comes and says, I'll tell you what, I'll go and put a lying spirit in the prophets, and they will deceive him. And so Micaiah then reporting this said, Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all these prophets, and the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. It was God's will to destroy Ahab in this way. He prophesied it years before. But he uses now an evil army with an evil spirit tempting false prophets to deceive Ahab in order to accomplish holy, glorious purposes. That's what this challenge teaches us. God is in control. God is absolutely sovereign. But notice as well how much God delights in his people's holiness. This pure God, eyes are too pure to look upon evil. Even it's expressed in Job, he, he doesn't even absolve his angels from, from evil. And yet he boasts about Job. What I want you to understand is Zephaniah 3 reminds us God glories over us. Every one of you who's in Christ Jesus, I want you to know that God glories in you. He takes pleasure in you. Remember that line, well, most of you probably haven't seen the movie. If not, go see it this week, but uh, Chariots of Fire. And he's explaining to his sister why he runs. He says, because he takes pleasure. And it's running, he takes pleasure. So just as we as parents, the first baby, particularly the first words, oh, you think he'd spoken a, a whole speech, uh, the first walk, why he's uh, the fastest runner in the world. Uh, every little baby step that our children make, we revel in them. They get older, the art goes on the refrigerator. Grandparents, we give them a particular chore, and uh, they do it to the best of their ability. Now, it's nowhere near the, the level of, of what we would have done it or what we would expect another adult to do it, but we praise them because we delight in them, we love them. And God delights in you. He delights in your baby steps in the pursuit of holiness, as he delighted in Job. But then those in whom he delights, he also has confidence, sustained by his grace, but confidence, you see. He can use Job now as the foil against the purposes of Satan. For the manifestation of God's wisdom. Even as Paul will write to the Ephesians about the church. That the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church. To the rulers and authorities and heavenly places. To good angels but to evil angels as well. As God works in our lives and he brings us through trials. Uh, he is using us. And, and my friends this is one of the reasons some of us go through inexplicable trials. We've talked often about little Ellie Rogers and what, what's going on. One of the things that we know is that God... He's using a family to bring glory to himself. And that's something he does through your trials. As by his grace you endure them. As you persevere, he's bringing glory to himself. He's pouring out his wisdom and the power of saving grace. Well, having seen the audience and the challenge, we come to the real climax now of this section. And that is the, um, 
sovereign permission. Satan responds exactly as God knew he would. In verse 9, then Satan answered Jehovah, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. Put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. We said that Satan is the adversary of God and his people. His other word, devil, means that he is the slanderer of God and his people. And do you see here how he slanders not just Job, but God? He, he says basically that uh, Job is only serving God because God has blessed him. Indeed, what Satan says is all true. God has blessed everything about him. God has put a hedge about him and his house on every side. God has blessed the work of his hands and his possessions. And Satan says, that is why he's serving you. Now, he's slandering Job because he's seeing that Job is a hypocrite, right? He's in it for what he can get. Take it away, and he'll curse you. But above all, who is he slandering? He's slandering God. He says, God, you're no better than a rice missionary. You bought this man off. You have so protected him that, of course, he's going to serve you. But strip it all away. Lay him out naked. And he'll curse you to your face. Now, before we move to permission, I want to ask you seriously to think about something. What would happen today if God took away everything? Your home, your family, your wealth, your health. What if terrible persecution broke out against us and we'd either be hiding in holes in the ground or in prison or being put to death? Would you still love God? Would you still serve Him when He would treat you so roughly? Are you, do you so delight in Him today that all can be stripped away? And you would love him. Let your response be that of Habakkuk. Don't you love the end of Habakkuk? The Babylonians are going to destroy his country. It's very inexplicable to him. But this is his prayer, his hymn. Though the fig tree should not blossom, there be no fruit on the vines. Though the yield of the olives shall fail, and the fields produce no food. Though the flock should be cut off from the fold. There'd be no cattle in the stalls. That's like saying, you know, your car's gone, your food's, your pantry's empty, your freezer's empty. I have nothing left. Yet, I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He's made my feet like hinds feet. and makes me walk on my high places. May that be our conviction today. That regardless of the lot of our lives. If he slays us, we'll still praise him because we love him for who he is and not for his gifts. And he'll strip the gifts away at times in order to test us. But then we have the act of permission 
itself. Startling words, aren't they? In verse 12, And then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only, literally it's in your hand. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord or from Jehovah. All that he has is in the power of your hand. God gives Satan absolute permission to destroy the prosperity and the family of Job. But you see his sovereignty? You see where he drew the line? You see that Satan cannot go beyond what God grants? You see, it's funny, Satan understands the sovereignty of God. He says, you put forth your hand. Uh, Satan's better than most evangelical theologians today. He knew that God was sovereign. He's begging permission is what he's doing. And God gets it, but in the sovereignty, God says, yes, this far, no farther. You may do these things, but you may not lay a hand upon him. Which is a wonderful thought. And that's why we sing, how firm a foundation. That all these trials that enter into our lives are all of God's purpose for us. When through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be your supply. The flame shall not hurt you. I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. Job was an upright man. God was not chastening Job for sin. God was holding Job up as his warrior. As a type of Christ, the truly perfect innocent man who around whom God put no restraints on the evil one, but God himself withdrew his hand from our Savior. So you see God's sovereignty in the court, in the challenge, in the permission. God's sovereignty over all the purposes and strategies of the evil one. As you look at that, consider in the first place the nature of this evil being. The malice that he has toward God and Satan. And understand then, boys and girls, when Satan comes tempting you, young people, when he comes tempting you, older people, when he comes tempting you and he's dangling in front of you, all of these pleasures. He says, here's real happiness. You know, boys and girls, you get tired of, of the laws of the Bible, of your parents. And Satan says, oh, listen, I've got happiness for you. You remember in the line, the witch in the wardrobe, that Turkish delight? Oh, it tasted good. But it brought into bondage and deadly destruction. That is his goal in every single temptation. He hates you. He hates all people. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, and you're enticed with the things of the world, you're enticed with the pleasures that he sets before you, your own lusts are excited, Understand there's no happiness there. He's going to kill you. He's going to take you to hell with him. And so this morning, if you're not trusting in Jesus Christ, if you are still playing with the world, I urge you to flee to the Lord Jesus Christ, to flee the snares and the evil of this most awful group of beings, the devil and his demons and other devils. Consider in the second place, though, 
his subtlety. He's a great psychologist. He knows you better than you know yourself. Now, he thought he knew Job. And as we'll see, what he hadn't reckoned on was God's sustaining grace. <laughs> but he knows you. He knows your weaknesses and your besetting sins. He's going to use the world around you and stir up your own lust with respect to those things. That's why you must be aware of his strategies. When you go out to play, you got to watch for the snake. In Brazil, there, in South Africa, there's places where the black mamba lives. And you always have to be watching for the black mamba because if the black mamba bites you, you die within a minute, if not seconds. You think they walk around carelessly? But you're walking around carelessly. You're not thinking about the strategies of this one who wants to destroy you. That's why our Savior teaches us to pray, lead us not in temptation and deliver us from evil. Don't leave the house in the morning without asking God to protect you from his wiles, to keep you from temptation, to protect you in temptation. And throughout the day, understand he is a relentless opponent, this roaring lion who roams about seeking whom he may devour. And then get a better insight into God's trials in your life. So often it's the petty things. It's the, the phone call or the refrigerator breaks or uh, it's an interruption. And, and you know what we say is, I don't need this. You ever said that? <laughs> and you know who you just accused? The sovereign God who ordered it. Ultimately, sovereign over all things. And understand then that he's using the minor trials to train us for bigger trials. We're, we're not like Joe. We're not thrust into the cauldron. We're not thrown in the deep end, swim. No, God trains us. So look on every minor trial as an opportunity to grow in patience and trust and submit to God. Then when the, the stronger trials come, you'll be prepared by the Spirit to endure and endure to the end. And to do so with confidence then because you know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.